1: taking all these books i thought i'd take some light reading in case i got bored
2: welcome everyone to another exciting episode of literary treks trek fm's dedicated star trek books and comics show i'm just one of your hosts dan gunther and joining me as he does every week is the most excellent not at all cut off from the rest of the of humanity in the small magellanic cloud bruce gibson bruce how's it going yeah baby thank you for having me <laughs> i have no idea what just happened there but cool i'm i'm digging it i'm digging okay it.
0: i was watching some austin powers the other night so that's yeah that baby yeah Oh,
2: I'm, i must have peaked there so. oh, oh geez Randy. i really did oh wow. so,
0: <laughs> Sorry. so yeah it's just me and mini me here uh doing
2: literary tracks
0: i'm not referring to dan <laughs> as mini me there's actually another me here
2: there's two i don't like your insolent tone number two (laughs) (laughs) that was really good oh man okay i loved austin powers when i was in high school and uh you know sorry if that makes anybody out there feel old or anything like that but uh i actually saw the second one, the spy who shagged me in theaters before I had ever seen the first one. That's the one I and, watched the other night. <laughs> oh, I just absolutely loved it. And, um, I, <laughs> I worked on my Dr. Evil impersonation far more than is probably healthy. And I think I don't like your insolent tone. Number two might've been like one of my memorable quotes in my yearbook. I, yeah.
0: Anyway, (laughs) that's great. (laughs) Well, I was uh, when Goldmember came out, I worked at a cable company and uh, I got a promotional package from the studio to promote the movie on pay-per-view and it came with a little Austin Powers head keychain where you press little uh, buttons under his neck that look like little red veins and you would click it and he'd be like, yeah, baby, and make all these little (laughs)
2: things. And I used to go around the (laughs)
0: office playing that all the time.
2: Oh, that's great. That's great. Well, we're not here to talk about Austin Powers as much fun as that would be. I, I kind of want to do that podcast now. Yeah, let's do it the 602 Club. Yeah, it, it's timely, <laughs> right? It's, it's yeah, anyway. <laughs> but no, we're here to talk about Star Trek books and comics. And uh, one thing we do have this week actually is a new comic to discuss. And this one is the Star Trek Waypoint Special 2019 So, uh, yeah, this is another one of the, uh, the Star Trek waypoint stories. That's those ones that have a bunch of small stories that are kind of, uh, different from your typical Star Trek comic stories. And, uh, this was a regular series at one point, but now they've, uh, changed it. So it's just a special that comes out every once in a while. So we do have a new issue that has four stories from the original series, the next generation, uh, Voyager and, um, Deep Space Nine, I guess, kind of tangentially. That's a wharf ambassadorial story. So uh, yeah, let's get into it and, and talk about uh, this issue. So the first story we've got, uh, the original series, this story is called Hearts and Bones uh, by Stephen Mooney. And we kind of have this interesting little story about The Enterprise is in orbit around Vulcan, and there's a visiting doctor that Dr. McCoy has kind of uh, started to fancy and (laughs) has been shot down and is kind of depressed about it. And over the course of the story, we learn that this doctor is a Vulcan. Uh, So Bruce, what did you think of this story? And uh, what did you think about Bones' attempts to romance a Vulcan woman? I think he could have done handled his uh, moves
0: a little better, but uh, I don't know. I was actually trying to think if I really believe bones would be attracted to a Vulcan woman like this. Um, I, you know, just the way he is about Vulcans and Spock, but at the same time I was like thinking, well, you know, to me, it's like his relationship with Spock is almost like, you know, bickering brothers. They really do care for each other, but you know, they're always, picking on each other and not admitting it and so when this vulcan woman who's a doctor and he's working with all of a sudden it's like he really does have a thing for vulcans in a sense <laughs> you know. <laughs> and i think he just probably surprised himself that he found her to be attractive and but i just i i, I really don't know if he would i can see why he would get all nervous i guess because, mm-hmm. I mean, trying to hit on a Vulcan woman would make me nervous, too, because they're not <laughs> yeah. responding in any kind of emotional way. You can't tell if they like you or not.
2: Yeah, that bone Southern charm. I can't see that really working on a Vulcan all that well. Um, you know, that said, you know, Sarek and Amanda got together somehow. So, you know, I, I could see him kind of falling for this person and, you know, like you said, it being kind of unexpected to him. Um, but it's definitely something that I couldn't see working out in the long run. So you know, I was kind of trying to think of like you know, Bones, where's where's your head at? What, <laughs> is this really a a viable thing, or you know, maybe maybe he wasn't looking for a long term thing anyway. But well, uh, it's
0: kind of how I felt with Enterprise when Trip and T'Pol were getting together. I'm like, I don't know. But then it was working hmm. later for me.
2: Yeah, I see because I think. This is, you know, maybe a hot take. I don't know. I think Tripp and T'Pol are one of the better couples in all of Star Trek. So, yeah, I don't yeah, know. I don't know.
0: But then I have a question for you about this story. There's a Vulcan on the operating table. Is Who is is that Spock? I don't know who they're operating on. Hmm.
2: That's a good question. I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah. Because, you know, he's talking about doing the procedure. Might have been one of her patients from Vulcan or something like that. And she was demonstrating a procedure or something like that. Or I'm not sure. Yeah. I don't know. They never. Because they are. That. They are in orbit of Vulcan. So, you know, they can just pick one up. Uh, <laughs> I guess so. That
0: makes. Yeah. Yeah. That's probably yeah. it then. But yeah, I didn't think it was Spock. But then after I read, it, I was like, well, wait, they never really said who that was. Is it Spock? I don't think so.
2: Yeah, I, I didn't think so. But then I never, yeah, I never really thought of it. Um, before I move on from this story, I do want to compliment the art in this one. I think it's really good. Uh, very similar to when we talked about the year five uh, issue, that kind of pencil, that old, older style looking comic. Uh, I really like there's a couple shots of Spock where when he's raising his eyebrow kind of reminded me of the gold key Spock, which I don't know if that's a good thing or not, but it it really worked. The style for this really worked. And when we get close-ups of the characters, the likenesses are really excellent.
0: Yeah. I hadn't thought about that, but yeah, I can see some of that gold key type Spock or whatever that you (laughs) said. And of course there's certain uh, panels where, you know, it's directly from a still
2: from one of the episodes. You know, yep, recognize mm. that one. Yep, recognize that. <laughs> yeah, there's that that close up of McCoy with that little smirk on his face. That's kind of a famous uh, shot of him for sure. Also, the the sets in the background, like the briefing room and the corridor and sickbay, they're all just really, really faithful to what you see on the show. So, some really good stuff in here.
0: Yeah, I just noticed that the conference room table has a tablecloth on it. That's pretty good. Cool. Well, I, I, I don't know if that's a conference room, but it looks like one of the conference rooms mm, where they were yeah. eating dinner. And and they mentioned that Chef prepared a,
2: a nice meal. <laughs> Hopefully it's not just a holodeck program with Riker taking the role.
0: <laughs> no, it's, it's Chef from the NX-01. He just has a long lifespan, and now he's on the NCC-1701.
2: Oh, see, he's an Elorian. He's a listener, like Guinan. That makes sense. Yes. Okay, that's why Riker took the role. Anyway. Actually, it is Guinan. <laughs> oh, there you go.
0: <laughs> Perfect. Wouldn't that be funny? We find out Chef was Guinan this whole time.
2: <laughs> oh man, that would have been brilliant. I would have. I would have actually le- legitimately loved that. Yeah, anyway. <laughs> So moving on to the second story in this novel, it's a Star Trek, the next generation story, uh, called unfathom. And, uh, this is kind of featuring, uh, Dr. Beverly Crusher. So when we were getting into this and starting, I hadn't really looked over the titles before I started reading. I was kind of like, Oh, are these all going to be stories about the doctors on the show? Um, on the shows, because I hadn't, you know, looked at the titles before I started reading. So I wasn't sure. But, uh, yeah, this one's centering on Dr. Crusher and they're responding to, um, I'm guessing a distress call of some kind from this ship. And there's kind of some mystery about what it's all about. Uh, she figures it's a medical mystery, but Picard wants to be a little more cautious. So he sends Tasha Yar with her as well. So obviously this is taking place during the next generation's first season. And they take the shuttle pod Pike over to this ship where they've discovered that uh there may be crew members disappearing, but the remaining crew members don't remember them they're just kind of they're just listed in the crew manifest and stuff, but you know there's far fewer of them than there should be, but there's also this uh device that's kind of a tardis like device it's bigger on the inside, I guess you can carry uh cargo around in it. And it shunts things out of the universe, I guess. Um, And Dr. Crusher ends up getting pulled into it. And there she finds the remainder of the crew. But because she's been pulled into this thing now, everyone outside of it doesn't remember her. It's like she's been erased from the universe kind of thing. So uh, kind of a different story. It's kind of all over the place. What did you think of this one?
0: I'm laughing because when you said about her disappearing from the universe and people don't remember her, I'm like, and that was the start of season two. (laughs) The whole season they forgot about her.
2: (laughs) Oh.
0: Wouldn't that be funny?
2: (laughs) That's kind of brilliant. If they didn't already have the explanation that she went off to Starfleet Medical, but like if she was just gone in season two, (laughs) if this story had tied into that, oh my God, that's (laughs) funny. (laughs) Yeah.
0: But no, I love the concept of the uh, bending space to create storage, just like bending space for warp speed. I thought that was really brilliant. I love the idea of this, this round object has like all these things in it it's all being stored. And it's like you said, it's like a TARDIS, it's like bigger on the inside. It's like, you know, I love that concept of just like there's all these things. And the, it's like when we upload files to the cloud or whatever. And it's like, you know, Oh, or put it on a flash drive. All my files are on this little device, you know? But I thought that was pretty cool. The rest of the story, I, I, I liked it. Um, and finding the crew in there that was missing. The only thing I didn't care for is the, how it resolved itself where she mm-hmm. leaves the message I'm cooking. Cause I was like, wait, why is that going to be a clue for Tasha? And I had to go back and then go, Oh yeah. She said something about, uh, you know, if this isn't a medical mystery then um if it isn't i'll cook you dinner from mm-hmm. scratch and i just kind of forgot about that line cuz it didn't really mean much to me. What meant most to me about that line was when she said, this is a medical mystery. And I thought, Oh, Dan loves medical mysteries.
2: (laughs) This was a little bit different though, than your typical medical mystery. So I didn't, yeah, I didn't really think that badly of it, but yeah, if she could write, you know, I'm cooking, why couldn't she just write Dr. Crusher or something like that? Or, you know, like, because what she writes twigs Tasha's memory and she all of a sudden remembers Dr. Crusher. So, it, uh, yeah, it seemed a little bit, you know, you could write something a little more meaningful, maybe. I don't know.
0: I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. But like you said, I mean, I agreed with you when you said about writing Dr. Crusher. But then again, she would just go, Dr. Crusher? What's Dr. Crusher? But then when you get a message saying, I'm cooking, you probably really stop and think about, what the heck? I'm cooking. What? <laughs> what? You know, And then all of a sudden it triggers. I don't know. But no, I mean, it was good. Wesley's mom.
2: She could write Wesley's mom. Wesley didn't get erased.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Darn. And and a bunch of Star Trek fans wish he did.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, this was an interesting story. I didn't like it. Oddly enough, I didn't like it as much as the first one. I never thought I'd be like, oh, I'm really interested in a story about McCoy trying to um, romance a Vulcan woman. But um, this one was okay, but yeah, the, the, um, the closing of it, the, the wrap up, like you said, kind of left me a little bit cold.
0: Yeah. But the rest of it was good.
2: Yeah, definitely. Uh, what did you think of the artwork for this one?
0: Um, it's, it kind of reminded me of a, uh, it's very cartoonish in a way, but mm-hmm. it, it wasn't anything I di- uh, that bothered me or I didn't like. I actually... It it kind of fits the whole story in a sense. I mean, yeah. with waypoint, it, it really works for me.
2: Yeah. I kind of liked it. It felt, uh, um, it felt kind of webcomic like for me. I don't yeah. know. I, I, I really liked the style. I thought it was cool and neat to revisit the season one era and have Tasha play a role too. I thought that was cool.
0: I was just going to say that it's great to see Tasha back. And you know what? The other thing, it's really funny. There's a connection between the story and the first one, because in the first story, Uh, They were talking about, you know, compliments to the chef when they're having dinner with the Vulcan Mm. doctor at the end of this story. uh, Beverly says, I forgot to mention I'm a terrible chef. So chef Mm. has been mentioned in
2: both stories, (laughs) two doctors, two chefs. Interesting. I wonder if we'll be three for three with the next story. (laughs) Well, the next one is called the swift spoke uh, written by Malachi Ward and Matt Sheehan and, uh, this one's a flashback story to commander Katherine Janeway, a science officer on the USS Billings and, uh, detailing this kind of first contact mission, uh, that she's leading the away team on along with, uh, a security officer, Lieutenant Tuvok. So, um... This is an interesting story. I like uh, that there's references to some of the backstory that we've gotten for them in the past, where she talks about Tuvok having, um, you know, dressed her down in front of three admirals for this, how she handled a previous mission, which we learned of in a Voyager episode. Um, And also the artwork on this one, I find really cool. This is again from that, you know, early TNG era. So everybody's got the tight fitting Uh, TNG uniforms and uh, really great likenesses and really kind of uh, de-aging the character of Janeway to her younger years here. Um, The story itself, I got a little bit confused and kind of had to kind of go back and figure out what was going on. Basically, they're making first contact with these life forms, but The universe keeps kind of shifting around them to different environments, but the aliens are, you know, there and it's really confusing for the uh, Starfleet crew members and they end up just kind of leaving and saying, we'll come back and, and figure this out again later. You know, one of the universes has, you know, some volcanic activity that's threatening and all that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah. What did you think of this one, Bruce? I have to say, Dan, I have nothing to say because everything you said is exactly
0: (laughs) what I was thinking and was going to say. Um, I I was a little confused myself, too. But then as they later explain, you know, oh, we must be, you know, moving from different dimensions to other dimensions and such. I mean, I actually kind of enjoyed it. I like seeing Janeway in her earlier parts of her career. And she's she's got you know short hair. She's wearing a you know uniform in blue for medical. So it's cu- kind of cool to see that uh, she, both her and Tuvok are lieutenants. And like you said, she mentions about him giving her a dress down. You know, it's like it, it's not the same relationship necessarily of you know captain and her security officer on Voyager. So uh, I like seeing the two of them together like this, where they're more on equal footing uh, uh, together, but. I mean, I I thought it was interesting because it's, it did seem very alien and I like to see more of that in Star Trek where things really don't make
2: sense or are very
0: strange because it is very alien and I appreciate that.
2: Yeah, I really, I, I, I appreciated that aspect of it as well. I think the story's meant to kind of leave you as confused as they were. So I think that that kind of worked well, you know, when they're back on the shuttle, they kind of suss it out and. Oh, that's cool. I, and I love that, you know, we always hear about Janeway having been a science officer and to be able to see that background, um, with her, you know, sciencing stuff, it, you know, so many people love it when, uh, Janeway and Torres get together on Voyager and, and science the crap out of something. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's cool to see her doing, you know, what we've, we've heard her background is here. So yeah. yeah, some good stuff.
0: Yep. I like this.
2: So the final story Uh, is called The First Year, written by Tom Zoller. And uh, this one takes place during Worf's tenure as the Federation ambassador uh, to the Klingon Empire. And it's clear he's in, you know, kind of a bad mood. He's uh, asked that no visitors see him that day. And he's kind of blocked himself off but one visitor does get through and she you know rest assured he'll want to see me he'll make an e- exception and it turns out to be Ezri dax and the reason she's there is it has been one klingon year uh since jadzia died and he's kind of uh, warfs obviously uh out of sorts because of that and Ezri's kind of uh there to commiserate with him a little bit um he has to go off to this, uh, other place on Kronos to mediate a dispute or something like that. And Dax tags along and we get this kind of nice reminiscence about, uh, Worf and Dax. And we see, you know, Ezri kind of change to look like Jadzia, um, you know, in either her mind or Worf's mind, we're kind of, it's unclear a few times, um, and they, you know, have a, a Batleth, uh, fight with each other, you know, just kind of, a uh, practice or whatever. But, uh, I, I, I have to say, you know, there's story-wise not a lot going on other than them talking about, you know, Worf's feelings and, and that sort of thing. This one I think was my favorite. I really enjoyed this one because I love Worf and Dax and that whole, di- and that whole dynamic and, uh. I really thought this one was really good. What did you think about it?
0: Yeah, I did. I liked it too. I'm trying to think which one was my favorite because I hadn't really thought about it. But uh, I mean, yeah, this might be either my favorite or my second favorite. What I liked about it is ex- it is exploring the relationship with Worf and Dax, Jadzia Dax and Ezri Dax. And it's like you're saying you know, you'll see a panel because there's Ezri with Worf, and then the next panel is Jadzia. And it's showing that, you know, he's having memories of her, of Jadzia, what with Ezri there, and there's certain traits that Ezri is probably displaying that are very much Jadzia. So it helps Worf kind of come to terms with that he needs to and just get over Jadzia's death. But not just that, but you know Ezri points out to him that she thinks he left DS nine to become an ambassador because he just couldn't st- cope with being on ds9 after jadzia's death death and she just need he just needed to get away and he ran to something that really wasn't making him happy anyway so being he wasn't maybe all that happy on ds9 because jadzia is gone but now he's in a job that he doesn't really care for that much and he doesn't find all that exciting which helps make him make the decision that he wants to get back to starfleet so yeah mm-hmm. i i like that that whole story um it's a very good Character insight into Worf at this period of time in his life.
2: Yeah, and I really like that. Uh, yeah, in the end, you know, he's kind of made some decisions about his life, and Ezri's really done her job as a counselor, <laughs> you know, to kind of help him through this and see that. And he decides he's going to contact Captain Picard. And of course we know when we see Nemesis, he's back in Starfleet and aboard the enterprise. So we kind of know how that's going to turn out. And And, we know uh, from reading the, a time two novels. We do indeed. Absolutely. (laughs) So there's one nitpick I have on this and
0: it's not just the story, but it's, there's other Star Trek stories, the same thing where, okay, it's the one year anniversary of Jadzia's death. And esri comes all the way from ds9 to surprise wharf on chronos and that's like dan that would be like me just showing up at your house because it's not an easy flight or travel for me to get and to be expensive or whatever and the time to get all the way to where you live just to show <laughs> up randomly to say hey dan you know it's our whatever anniversary of literary tracks
2: <laughs> <laughs> and i'd be like that's cool but i have to go to work now and then i've got this thing after and like what the hell are you doing here <laughs> right and for all she
0: knew when she got there Worf, he might not even be there you know he could yeah. be off traveling somewhere else. so in my head canon i imagined that she was on a mission on a star starship That went to Cronus for some reason or whatever. And while she was there, she realized, oh, it's our, the one year anniversary. I'm going to go see if Worf's around.
2: That makes sense. I like that. You see that so much in and not just Star Trek, but yeah, you see that in television shows all the time, right? The, you know, unexpected visitor and it's just all okay. And like, really, you flew here from Europe? (laughs) Like that's crazy (laughs) or whatever. Yeah. It's like,
0: uh, you know, Chris Jones, founder of Trek FM lives in Japan. I might just show up one day and go, Hey, I just came to wish you a happy 10th anniversary of Trek FM when we (laughs) get to that point.
2: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) A little crazy for sure. But yeah, all in all, I think this was a good, uh, special issue. I would say more so than the other waypoints, these stories feel more kind of normal stories than we've gotten in the past they felt more like just kind of regular stories i I don't know if that makes sense or not no it does
0: make sense because the some of the waypoints have really explored you know like one that's about uh like there's one about just porthos you know from enterprise Mm -hmm. or there's one that's trying to be like a gold key comic and be a little silly and you know yeah, or written that would, by
2: Naomi Wildman, or yeah,
0: yeah, things you wouldn't typically see in any Star Trek story anywhere. But yeah, these just felt like
2: you know short little regular Star Trek stories. Definitely enjoyable though, so I, I definitely recommend this one. I thought it was a lot of fun. Yep. Well, before we get to the feature, uh, we do want to talk a little bit about some feedback that we got from our listeners in the Babel conference. Uh, so let's, uh, nip over to the Babel conference and read some of those comments here. And this is for, uh, Literary Treks 266, Bringing the Truth Out of the Shadows. And that was the episode where we interviewed Dayton Ward about his new Star Trek, the next generation novel, Available Light. I still get really excited when I say the words new Star Trek, the next generation novel, because we haven't had a lot of those lately and it's so great to have them back. Yes, (laughs) We were a little worried there for a while. Definitely. Well, uh, Stefan Seitz is, uh, still trying to get us to read a hard rain, which is a star Trek, the next generation novel. And he links to it for us, links to it for us here. Uh, and he says, this is really awesome. I was reading it in one sitting years ago. So, man, maybe we really do need to add this to our list because he's really pushing for us to read this novel.
0: I never read it and I would like to, but yeah, I mean, uh, it's, it's going to be a while if we get to it, but yeah, for sure. <laughs> well, let's put on the list. So, Definitely. We'll see. Chris Hill says, I love hearing from the authors about their novels. My girlfriend says that Dayton should do his own podcast because
2: she likes his voice. Wow. <laughs> I like that idea. I I think he would do a really good podcast for sure. I saw that somebody asked him about that on Twitter and, uh, I don't know if it was the same person I'm, I'm going to assume that's just too big of a coincidence, but, uh, yeah, he says, uh, he said he'd be interested, but doesn't know what he'd talk about. So I saw that too on Twitter. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Keep an eye out for a Dayton ward podcast. Maybe you never know. (laughs) Well, Justin Ozer says he came here to redeem the new Patreon benefit of a free trip to the virtual reality of Osijamal. He's packed and ready to go. Ah, unfortunately, Justin, bad news. Um, We didn't get clearance uh, from the uh, regulating authorities to deconstruct people down to the molecular level and uh, put them into a computer program, which is uh, really too bad because I, I thought that was a really great perk. I was excited to be able to offer it, but unfortunately unforeseen circumstances have meant that we can't do that so darn it sorry about that oh darn
0: what (laughs) justin also says great interview i always love hearing dayton's voice no he didn't say that i'm sorry (laughs) he said great interview i always love hearing dayton's insights into his novels and i'm excited that he's working on more star trek stuff hopefully a picard series novel and uh Justin goes on to say there was one character that we didn't cover, and that was the Federation president. Oh my gosh, I can't even do this name. Telesar Zatarish? That's how, yeah, Kelisar Zatarish Kelesar or Zatarish. T- mm-hmm. T- or something like that. Anyway, <laughs> she's the new Federation uh president and uh and she was in the Prometheus novels also, which I do recall. But yeah, um, yeah, sometimes we just, and as I replied to him, sometimes we just get, don't get to every character or, or, or scene that, that we like. There's sometimes we do a show and after we're done, we go, oh, wait, I forgot I wanted to mention this. you <laughs> know, We do that all the time. So. Mm-hmm. But yeah, Justin, I'm
2: glad you called that out. Yeah, definitely. And, and yeah, that's definitely the case that, you, like Bruce said, there's always stuff that I'm, I'm sure in our discussion today that we're going to have about the Titan novel, the red King. Oh, I didn't tell you about that earlier. Did I, uh, in which we're going to be talking to one of the authors, Michael A. Martin, I'm sure there's going to be something that we forgot to bring up that uh, someone will point out in the Babel conference for sure. Um, so yeah, finally Kay Frick says. Dayton Ward always gives great interviews. I liked hearing his thought process on the Admiral Ross scene and can't wait to see David Mack begin to clean up the latest mess he made with all the toys. Well, thanks for that comment. Um, David Mack cleaning up messes. I don't know that that's what he's really known for, I'm kind of worried that, (laughs) I mean, you know, some of David Mack's novels, he doesn't do a lot of cleaning up of messes as opposed to, you know, maybe making some new messes. I'm thinking the destiny trilogy. I'm thinking control. I think we're going to be in for a wild ride with collateral damage. And, uh, you know, maybe some cleanup of a bit of the mess, but I'm sure just another, just upending the toys all over the floor because you know, that's what he does and that's what we love.
0: (laughs) Yeah. It's like he might clean up and he's just going to throw it all back and make it even messier. (laughs) Exactly.
2: (laughs) That's what we like for sure. Well, yeah, thank you guys all so much for those comments. I really do appreciate it. And if you have a comment on today's episode, go to the Babel Conference, find the post for this episode, and leave us a comment, and we will read it on the show. Well, on today's episode, we're talking about the second book in the Star Trek Titans series as we continue our look at the post-Nemesis Star Trek universe and that novel is The Red King by Michael A. Martin and Andy Mangels. And we have one of the famous duo with us today. So joining us for the first time on Literary Treks is Michael A. Martin. Michael, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Well, Thank you for having me.
2: Awesome. Really excited. Always happy to have a new writer on. So uh, this is, it's great. Hopefully we can do more of these in the future as well.
1: It's funny you refer to me as new. <laughs> <laughs> came out about a hundred years ago.
2: (laughs) Definitely one of the the veteran writers of, you know, the last few years of, of Star Trek books for sure. So, uh, it's actually kind of surprising we haven't gotten you on before now, but, uh, glad to finally get you on the show to talk about, uh, what is one of my memorable novels from the last few years for sure. Uh, so, to start with, let's talk a little bit about the kind of premise of Titan to begin with. One of the things that I was kind of curious about was, uh, we have this series that goes on for a number of books and lots of different authors contributing to it, but you and Andy did the first two novels that kind of kicked the series off. And I'm curious, how did you guys get involved in, in kicking that story off and how much of that story, uh, and the characters of Titan are directly from you. Was there a collaborative effort with other authors or is, or are all these characters kind of, um, from your vision for the show, for the book series?
1: As I recall, um, we were, we were edited by, uh, Marco Palmieri. He kind of pulled everybody together on it. So, um, I don't know what his reasoning was for having us launch it, but, uh, um, or maybe he felt bad because we didn't get it in, into the uh, time to series that immediately preceded it. But uh, we got this nice, you know, got to kick off Titan. Um, but there was a, a series bible that Marco pulled together with input from uh, from us. From there was a lot of input from uh, Christopher Bennett. Um, I think David Mack. Um, there might have been a few others uh, at the time. There was a you know, a small number of us involved at the very beginning. And then more people came on board, you know, as, as happens in any, i want to say five-year mission, but what's it been to uh, 15 years. <laughs> uh, and they're still uh, going where no one's gone before. Um, so um, all we really, I, I think of it as sort of one big project books, one and two, because um, we had to, get the thing kicked off and book two was sort of, uh, act two, you know, uh, so we had to, we had to have a lot of that mapped out in advance and, uh, to the point where we actually had to have a whole scene from taking wing or from, from the red King written when we were still finishing up taking wing. So, um, that was a little bit of a challenge. Having you know this set piece already constructed and then writing the rest of the book so it ma- matches it and so the you know the railroad tracks meet in the correct place. Um, the big, the biggest thing I think was thinking of Titan as you know what what the character said it was in the book the most diverse crew in in Starfleet and so um, it kind of um, partly kind of grew out of something Spock once said in TOS and the wolf in the fold, uh humans and humanoids are a tiny minority of the intelligent life in the universe. And, uh, we kind of, we had an unlimited special effects budget and we weren't restricted to, uh, you know, uh, aliens that look human because 97% of the screen actors guild is human uh, or humanoid. And, uh, <laughs> so we could really do whatever we wanted or could be, you know, make really nifty, skiffy aliens. And, um, a lot of it was a lot, a lot of those characters were, um, I don't, I don't remember who created what it's like, uh, uh it was a, a very collaborative thing across books. I mean, there was actually, there were, um, uh, think of one thing that we did that we couldn't use in the book um or in either book um dr ree the the uh reptilian sort of velociraptor like chief medical officer who um we wanted to we wanted to show him dealing with an emergency situation by biting somebody Hmm. and uh we couldn't the circumstances just didn't didn't flow for that so so we Gave that little bit to to, to David to David Mack and and he it was great what he did with it um, somebody had to take a bite and look like he somebody had been uh, injured I think it was Deanna Troy I remember writing the Destiny trilogy somewhere and hmm. uh, uh, re bites her to to provide a natural anesthetic and slow her metabolism down. So he'd have time to do surgery and save her life. Uh, but yeah, you know, there were things like that. So there was a lot of swapping stuff back and forth. So it could be put in the best context on, you know, and in, in, in uh, a Titan scene, you know, where it belonged. because it, uh, you know, everything has to flow. So.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, I, I really like that concept of Titan being an extremely diverse ship because yeah, like, like you say, you know, we see mostly either humans or aliens who look like humans or have, you know, forehead appliances and that sort of thing. So to really get to stretch that and show us something new and different, I think is really cool. And in this novel in particular, I find that like it, it becomes a part of the story because uh, you know, we have Riker and Vale as the two top um, officers on the ship. And there's almost kind of this little bit of resentment, uh, that's, uh, expressed through, I think Bralik and, uh, uh, the, the Chablick officer whose name, I just can't remember it, The cadet, uh, Zurin. No, that's the Cardassian shoot. Um, Torvig, that's it <laughs> through, uh, Breilich and cadet Torvig, especially they, they kind of have a little bit of resentment there. And I like how, uh, you know, they address that and it becomes kind of a story point in the, in the book.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, it it was, it was the elephant in the room. So, you know, on the one hand is this most diverse crew ever assembled, but, uh, it's, um, there's a middle-aged white guy in, in charge and, and, and two other people in the senior hierarchy who, uh, uh, look every bit as, as human. And so, I think that was one thing that sort of bugged me about it a little bit, but you know, what can you do? It's it's Star Trek. It's um, dealing with some, you know, central beloved characters. And those are generally uh, beings that look like us because I guess most of the audience is not going to relate to, you know, a giant spider or something.
0: You know, you could have just killed Riker off in the first book. That would have been interesting (laughs) and put an alien as captain (laughs) right there on the Titan. (laughs)
1: <laughs> uh,
0: they wouldn't let you do that though
1: no no no, no. um well, we did get to um i mean we have killed our share of characters um we got to kill uh first minister first minister shakar in our deep space nine in the mission gamma um story arc so um, Yeah, we've got we've got enough blood uh, on our hands with beloved characters.
0: So I have to ask you something. When I first saw Star Trek Nemesis and it was mentioned that Riker was going to take over as captain of the Titan, my first thought in the movie theater was, oh, my gosh, we better get some Titan books. So I'm just curious (laughs) when you saw that movie, were you thinking, "Ooh, I'd like to write a book about Riker on the Titan"?
1: Uh, yeah, I think the thought crossed my mind fairly immediately, but it was, it was, a, it took a couple of years for the the series to kind of uh, to gel and and you know, uh, for it to actually become a, a, a an actual working project at Pocket. Um, so because it seems to me, if I'm recalling correctly, Taking Wing came out in 2005.
0: Yeah, that's right.
1: Yeah. Um, so there was, there were a couple of years in there, um, and we discussed it. I guess fairly early, and uh, a lot of a lot of things changed because the what was in the canon sort of changed. Um, there were scenes that were cut out of Nemesis where we saw the. Um, like uh, the incoming new first officer of the enterprise E was going to take over for Riker. And that went nowhere. Cause it wasn't, ultimately end up in the movie. And there was, there was stuff in the novelization of uh, nemesis that suggested that uh, Wesley Crusher was going to be the chief engineer aboard Titan. And, uh, uh, but since that was only in a novelization, we just ignored it. Um, but yeah, it took a, it took a little while for for the, this coherent sort of series bible to arise out of it, and, and, a, and a you know balanced, well thought out cast of characters, and uh, and it took a whole bunch of people to to do that. Um, I, I don't remember exactly which aliens uh, Chris Bennett um, created, but there were there were several of the of the extremely non-human characters and uh he has a he has a real flair for that kind of art hard science fiction analog magazine kind of world building Mm. so that was um that was nice to you know have a lot of that that um uh, material kind of worked out uh before we even came on board so um
2: what the end of the previous novel, Taking Wing, uh, we have this kind of mystery with the Romulan fleet, Donatra's, you know, dozens of ships have disappeared because she was uh, keeping them hidden in what they call the Great Bloom, which is kind of the remnants of the explosion of Shinzon's ship in Nemesis. Uh, And in this novel, uh, you know, Riker takes the Titan with uh, the rest of Donatra's forces, or the Valdor, basically and uh investigates that and they find themselves thrown uh into the small magellanic small magellanic cloud uh which i had actually reread uh your lost era novel the sundered in preparation for this as well because uh first of all i really love that book
1: (laughs) uh well yeah there was it gave us taking wing and uh well mostly the red king gave us an opportunity to sort of pay off on the, the check we wrote in the Lost Era novel. Um, the whole idea behind the, the Nael uh, was that what if... I, I actually, I think it came from Marco uh, asking a question. What if humans had an offshoot that was to humanity, what the Romulans are, to Vulcan? And what sort of responsibility would we feel toward, um, toward them and toward uh, other races that get sideways with them um, because they're, they're, they're um, a descendant species of humanity, but they're not part of the Federation. They're not um, read into the prime directive. They have no obligations to, to uh, the Federation um so if they're out there behaving badly um we bear some responsibility for that and how do you you know how do you deal with that what exactly responsibility do do does you know mainstream humanity have to the rest of the galaxy for for what these people do so that was the that was the big um, question. I think Marco was the first to ask that. And so the, the nail just kind of grew out of that. And uh, that, and the fact that I'd uh, posited the idea that uh, uh, a lot of the work, the preliminary work on creating Zefram Cochrane's warp drive in the mid 21st century, uh, there was a lot of uh, uh, infrastructural support and space, uh, space manufacturing um, you can't just, um, you can't just create antimatter out of, uh, you know, chewing gum. it's not a MacGyver thing. You need like a, a, a fully, you know, perhaps orbital, you know, maybe, um, uh, uh, microgravity environment to make certain stuff. Um, it's, Zefram Cochran didn't just do this all alone in his garage. And, um, and so that gave me the the opportunity to uh, kick off the nail by having one of these, one of these orbital platforms get, you know, punted across, you know, into trackless unknown space and, and then, you know, showing them adapting to where they are and becoming the species that ultimately Riker would meet and have to you know, figure out how to, how to deal with and, uh, and kind of, you know, repatriate to uh, humanity.
2: The, uh, with the Nael, I'm, I'm just curious, was there kind of always a plan to revisit them in a later novel when you first came up with them? Or was that just kind of a fortunate, like, oh, we've got this in our back pocket. Let's, uh, let's use that in this I story.
1: It was in the back of my mind. I was thinking, um, I, I, I mean, I think by the time that book came out, the so under um we knew something was you know was was in the planning stages for for titan and um so i think yeah so around 2003 2004 yeah i think that was starting to gel in the back of my head um that you know we had an opportunity to um take an alien species that we created for one purpose and um use it for another purpose or, you know, just to or, you know, show you what became of them. Um, and, you know, that's kind of opportunities like that are kind of rare. So um, we seized it.
0: Well, I also like how you took the nail and had them adapt through like genetic engineering and the you know, tails and everything, because wherever, the, you know, where they went to, they had to fit in. They just didn't stay as their typical human form. So tell us a little bit about that idea.
2: Well, uh,
1: I mean, it's not a, it's not a really new or original idea. Um, I can think of, uh, any number of authors of, it, uh, Frederick Pohl and man plus, um, where the alternative to terraforming a planet for human habitation is to tweak, uh, humans so that they can survive in these, um, uh, hostile environments. Um, and so it was just kind of carrying that idea into the Star Trek universe and it, it, it to me, it kind of, it, it kind of bumps up the reality level for me for, um, Star Trek, which is, you know, it's science fiction, but it's not obliged to, uh, you know, show you all the, uh, equations and rivets and, um, but when you're writing a long form novel, you, you kind of feel an obligation to, uh, really play the game with, you know, with the net up and, um, uh, you know, do the world building and, uh, show really alien aliens and, and science fiction concepts like the, uh, adapting to the environment rather than adapting the environment to humans. Um, that you you know find in the larger you know, mainstream of science fiction, so it's um, it's just uh, kind of uh, doing what we could to kind of widen the Star Trek universe.
2: I really liked the kind of juxtaposition of that with, uh, you know, some of the aliens that we see in Star Trek who are, for the most part, pretty human, because I, I thought it was interesting that, you know, Frayne, for example, the main Nael, uh, sorry, the main nail we interact with in this novel, uh, kind of comments to himself that, you know, comparing himself to uh, Admiral Akar, who is not human, but looks a lot more human than he does. I thought that was a really interesting kind of concept that got played with a bit.
1: Yeah, I don't even remember that bit. So maybe that might have been one of Andy's chapters. It was another um, another thing. Yeah, we you know come up with a roadmap and figure out okay who's going to write which chapter and then. Um, but you know we we going going over each other's stuff so much by the end of the process I couldn't tell you who wrote what.
0: Yeah, I remember hearing uh, in past interviews or reading that how you guys would write together. So it would be chapter by chapter. You would take one, He Andy would take the next one. Is that how that would work?
1: Um, well, I used, what I used to say was, uh, Andy does the consonants, I do the vowels. <laughs> and, uh, but what, what we would do is, is map the book out, make a pretty tight outline, bust that into chapters. And then um, just one of us would propose a list to the other you know i prefer to do these chapters is that okay and uh, you know we might haggle a little bit I'll, I'll trade you this one for that one but within about you know six hours we'd have that all figured out so um but it wasn't like a strict oh you write the odd ones i write the even ones or i just do the prime numbers or uh it's just um you know what we felt each felt most comfortable with. And um, this was still a collaboration because we're reading each other's stuff and, you know, trying to unify the voice. So by, the, by the time it's all done, you couldn't, you really couldn't tell. I don't think you could tell who wrote what.
0: Yeah. I never can tell. I I've read it and I'm like, gosh, I can't tell who wrote what. And I'm always thinking, am I just not noticing? But yeah, I can't tell.
1: Well, no, we, we consciously strove for that. It's like, this is sort of like the house style we want. Um, unless, unless there was a situation in which it made sense to have uh, two very different voices, like, uh, like maybe when we were, we, you might've been able to tell more of that in say, Mission Gamma, where you're on the station, then you're in the Gamma Quadrant, then you're back on the station, then you're back in the Gamma Quadrant, and it's like, well, okay, that's actually, that's not a bad thing to, to have a bit of contrast there um but uh the rest of it where everything is is kind of you know being is a ship in a bottle um everything's happening on the decks of the same ship um there's really no excuse to have wildly uh, divergent voices we really wanted it to um to to sound like it was the, the product of a single brain and i guess between the two of us we you know, have a have a pretty good single functioning brain
2: Awesome. Well, um, speaking of, uh, you know, we talked a little bit about some of these uh, ideas carried over from the Lost Era novels. Two of the characters who were in that novel aboard the Excelsior under Captain Sulu are also in this novel kind of creating that bit of connective tissue. So we've got uh, Tuvok and Admiral Akaar, both of whom served under Sulu on the Excelsior and were uh, thrown into the small Magellan. Oh my God. Every time the Magellanic cloud. Yeah, (laughs) that one, um, at that point as well. Um, and, and now they're on the Titan, uh, with Riker here. So I wanted to talk a little bit about their friendship because that's kind of a feature that's talked about a lot in this novel and kind of this event that happened in their past that drove a wedge between them. I was curious what it was like trying to get to the emotional core of a character, namely Tuvok, who has been traditionally uh, shown to display very little emotion. Was there kind of, um, some roadblocks in trying to do that? And also kind of, where did the inspiration for that part of the story come from?
1: Well, I, I don't, I, I never really saw any difficulty in, uh, uh, portraying Tuvok's emotion or his interior life. Uh, I mean, when you're in in his POV, you can actually see how much he's, um, restraining himself. Um, I personally, I think Vulcans are probably the most emotional species in, in the alpha quadrant. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, hence they're working so hard to, um, ameliorate that. Um, I mean, you have to work awfully hard. So, uh, uh, that that wasn't really uh, didn't really pose a lot of difficulty. I think um, the rift that happened between Tubak and Aka Ar, I think yeah we we knew that that had to have happened before we worked out any of the particulars of what it was or what the reason was for it. So we knew it would come out and flashback eventually. Um, we liked the idea of um, I mean we didn't. The, the Leonard James, our character, of course, goes back to TOS. You just see him as a, the baby, you know, Friday's child. <laughs> and uh, Marco um, brought him into uh, the DS9 universe. It became more, uh, more and more important the more we used him. And uh, tied in with the backstory for Commander Vaughn. And, uh, a lot of it was, uh, just showing that, uh, you know, Hey, you could be a hundred years old and you're still, you know, a hundred is like the new 60 or something. Um, that's, you know, not that old, um, in, in a 24th century with all this, you know, miracle medicine. Um, and he just kinda, we just kept going back to him over and over again. He was interesting.
2: Yeah, I, I really like what's kind of been done with his character and the importance he's gained over the years. Um, I think, uh, like, he was even in the most recent TNG novel by Dayton Ward, and I think he's, like, CNC of Starfleet at this point.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's great. That's, I mean, uh, yeah, because I think Keith had made him into one of the senior officials in the, in the Federation you know, in the, in the, the, what is it? The presidential palace in in France. And uh, um, so I think we already knew that before we got our hands on the character. So it was, it was fun to, you know, I can't remember the order in which those things came out he did that first or, or he did what he did because of what we did with him. I can't remember. Boy, that's helpful
0: no that's how i am i read so many of these novels i get them all mixed up and confused and what took place when also
1: when you're writing this stuff you're you are so close to it you know you're inside it and once you're done with it you've put it to bed you're kind of you know pounding on the side of your head going out 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 out." you know just trying to uh recover all that, uh, all that, uh, uh, gray matter space, you know, so you can load the next project in there and then get just as involved in the, in the innards of that one. And then, you know, plus 10, 15 years. And it's like, I wrote this really, it's like when you find a, a German translation of a book that you wrote and looking through it was like, oh my God, I, this exists because I put words on paper. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know how weird that i don't you know remember any but i certainly don't remember doing this in germany um, <laughs> so it's yeah, it, it, yeah it's a weird perspective when you're you know when you've been inside this thing for several months and then and then it uh, goes out into the world and then uh time passes
0: yeah i and yeah you know, just so you know because we were talking about you know tuvok and achenar and You know, one of the things I also like is, uh, Donatra because, you know, we really, when I think of Romulans, they're always deceiving. There's always, they're always underhanded. There's always something going on, but she's very much, I mean, she's still a little deceiving. I mean, she's still Romulan. Don't get me wrong, but I love the way you approach her character. Of course she was set up in nemesis, but, she really does come across as more of an ally, but she also still has her own agenda. I mean, we're, you know, we're seeing the humanizing of her, which I guess, yes, would be a bad word when you say Dan. So, yeah, cause it's a Romulan.
1: <laughs> she wouldn't like that very much. You know? Right.
0: No, but I'd love, she that. would
2: definitely object, <laughs>
1: <laughs> but then, yeah, well, yeah. She tell clearly us. Clearly agendas. And I mean, the, the politics in the Romulan empire is so complicated. There were, you know a half dozen different factions coming at each other from different angles and um yeah very very complicated stuff um uh, they're complicated people and um when it when it suits their the long, Whatever long game they're playing, yeah, why, why wouldn't they ally themselves with uh, the Federation?
0: Well, especially when there's a civil war going on with the Romulans. It's like, you know, everyone, like, choose sides and choose who's going to help you in your goals and your quest and your battles and, you know, align right. with the Federation or align with the Klingons, which ugh, no one Romulan, no Romulan really wants to do that. But, I mean, they got to just take advantage of what they can.
1: Right. And, you know, the question is, there's, there's a legitimate debate in Romulan circles about, you know, how much of our, we're going to lose some autonomy here. How much of it are we prepared to lose? And who's going to cut the best deal? Um, you know, uh, who, who's going to, uh, you know, just sort of annex us and engulf us and um, can make a good argument that uh, maybe the Klingons are the better choice um i mean with the observations cork always made on bs9 about the uh this sort of pernicious nature of human culture you know next thing you know um nog is is drinking root beer and <laughs> you know having bacon and eggs for breakfast and it's sort of like um i guess what was in the back of my mind was somebody's observation that the uh was it the arms race didn't uh, topple the Soviet Union? Rock and roll and blue jeans toppled the Soviet Union.
2: Kind of the editing, the Edington point of view, where he says, you know, the Borg tell you they're assimilating you. The Federation doesn't. They just, you know, you don't even know they're assimilating they
1: you. Know happened. Yeah, yeah, and I can kind of, can kind of relate to that. Yeah, you know, I don't know. Maybe I would have been uh, one of Doctor Severin's space hippies in a different time or place.
2: <laughs> I get, you know, there's every once in a while that, that seems pretty, um, I don't know, alluring that lifestyle. I could kind of go for that sometimes. Well,
1: maybe, even Spock was, he had to, you know, nod understanding so and some empathy for that.
2: Oh yeah, totally. They looked at him and said, you know, we reach brother. Yeah, they, they, <laughs> he definitely, oh. Definitely sympathized with them a bit there for yeah, sure. Nobody parties like Vulcans. I mean, if you've ever been to a
1: Vulcan wedding, it's uh, it's uh, really get out of hand.
2: <laughs> what did trip say? Awful big parties at the Vulcan compound.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. I, one thing I just want to mention because, uh, you know, we've touched on several things in this book and anybody who's listening to this, I mean, we're, if you haven't read the book, I mean, we're going to get a little more here into some spoilers so and and talking about, Donatra and the Klingons. One of my favorite scenes in this is uh, as they're the Titan, and you know the Romulan fleet, and as they're uh, pulling the Klingon ship with them through tractor beam or trying to get back to our galaxy. Uh, you know throughout this whole book, Donatra seems to be on the same playing field as Riker as we're going along, but then she uses this as an opportunity. To then blow up the Klingon ship as they're traveling back because she doesn't want word to get back to her people or to the Klingons that her fleet may be weak because they jess in the, um, the warp cores or whatever out of their ships and so it weakens her fleet. And so she has to prevent word getting back to the Klingons that she her fleet is vulnerable and I thought that was a really great scene. And then of her talking to Riker about it and Riker, and her, Riker challenging her on it and then seeing her point and why she had to do what she needed to do because she is a Romulan.
1: Yeah. Well, we, we have to be, you know, we have to remind people once in a while <laughs> that these are these are characters with their own agendas. And, uh, you know, if they're making nice, it might just mean it because it suits them to do so right now.
2: Yep. Yeah, that was, uh, it, it certainly kind of threw a glass of cold water in my face because like Riker and his crew as a reader, I had been totally lulled into a false sense of security. Like, oh, she's totally on board. You know, she's, uh, put Suran out of commission and yeah, she's backing this plan a hundred percent. And, uh, it's like the writers of deep space nine early on every once in a while had to have Dukat come and be a jerk because people were like, oh, he's, he's the nice friendly Cardassian. You know, no, he's the former warlord of Bajor. Never forget that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So I, we, yeah, we did our job then. If, uh, if that kind of, uh, if that surprised and shocked you, <laughs> <laughs> that was the intention.
0: It did. But at the same time, I kind of respected her because, not that I agreed with her actions, but she really truly is a Romulan and she's doing. But from her
1: perspective, that was the thing that had to be done. Right. So she did it
2: she's protecting her ship and her fleet. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, another aspect of this novel that, uh, that a lot of time is spent on, and I think it's a really interesting exploration of it. And that's the idea of, uh, the kind of, um, religion that's built around this, uh, basically spatial anomaly this proto-universe that's that's encroaching on our universe and erasing reality and according to the nail it's uh or well actually according to a lot of the species from the area that they've that they've colonized uh and adopted by some of the younger nail is the idea of, that it's this sleeper that dreams reality as it sleeps and as it awakes yeah the reality of that area of space is erased. And I thought this was really interesting. Star Trek is, you know, tends to stay away from religion for the most part. We see that, um, the exception to that, of course, a lot of Deep Space Nine, the recent uh, season of Discovery and that sort of thing. Where did this kind of idea come from to kind of explore, uh, you know, what faith is and, how that relates to reality. And I mean, like even the Bajoran prophets are kind of mentioned a bit in this novel as an example of that as well.
1: Well, I think the, the concept, the specific concept of the, of reality being the, the dream of this sleeping deity or whatever you want to call it, this sleeping super being, um, that's a, an old, uh, Hindu idea. And, um, and the, the timescales kind of work out with, with modern cosmology, because we're talking about cycles of billions of years. Um, but more broadly, um, the, um, the way I see religion in, in Star Trek universes, it's, uh, it's just another modality of explaining stuff that people don't understand. Um, people are going to use science people are going to use religion they're going to use whatever's in their toolbox to to make some kind of tentative sense of um sometimes apparently crazy universe and um to me it doesn't make sense to me that they're going to be completely empirical about that always um that's just how sentient beings are um there's uh I mean, your mileage will vary from species to species, but at the heart of it, um, humans and the aliens that stand in for them um, only have a limited tolerance of uh, ambiguity. And at some point, you have to have some kind of answer. And that might mean you're prepared to make some kind of leap of faith, and then a religious uh, uh, tradition grows out of that. And next thing you you know, you've got Bajor, that you know, spaceships and uh prophets that you worship. The only difference there between that and traditional religion is these beings provably exist. Um but whether or not they're gods or prophets or whatever, well, you know, we can argue about that. Who knows? Um, but it's it's that gray area of um there's there's stuff that's there's always a the next set of questions that you can't answer um, empirically, no matter how much you learn. In fact, the more you learn, the more you, more questions you learn how to formulate, and uh, so some of those questions are going to uh, rely on, on some kind of metaphysical answer, because there's nothing else um, that's you know satisfies that need to, um, you know, to say I I I understand something you know so that's why I, I never bought the gene runberry's idea of uh, it seemed like religion just was completely uh something everyone had outgrown and it was you know a, a vestigial tail that had fallen off um humanity a long time ago and, and you no know, people are people um i can believe in warp drive You know, in spite of Einstein, I can believe in transporters and phasers. But the perfectibility of human nature, um, I don't buy that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And, you know, that just works to the writer's benefit, because uh, if everyone is is a perfect uh, being, well, um, you've got no conflict, you've got no stories.
2: I really like uh, Star Trek's ability to kind of explore that, because, you know, in a lot of circles, if you you know start talking about a known religion here on Earth right now, you know that comes with a lot of baggage, and you can't really uh, explore that issue fully. But you know, in the context of Star Trek and alien religions, you can have a character like uh, I think it was Alyssa Ogawa's son speaking frankly about you know religion and what other people believe, and you know whether he believes it or not, or you know that sort of thing. You can kind of have this open discussion which i really appreciate it that you know some spaces don't give us that freedom (laughs) in the modern world
1: well i mean i think the 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 real progress in in uh uh, humanity's um you know growth as a species you know forward evolution whatever you want to call it is not going to be uh uh you know, shedding religion as a thing, it's, it's going to be developing a tolerance for ambiguity and just being able to live with the idea that what we know for a fact is always tentative. I mean, that's what science is. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't use science to prove stuff right. You use science to prove stuff wrong. Um, then, you know, when you've broken your, your theory, an experiment that shows you didn't understand it fully, you reformulate another hypothesis and you try again um, but um, it's that ambiguity that you know we have to learn how to live with cuz you you're never going to know everything there is to know
0: this whole idea about religion and everything you're saying reminds me of you know like deep space nine where the bajorans you know worship the prophets in the temple, but Starfleet looks at it as more science where it's, you know, aliens in a wormhole. And here we have this sleeper, this red King and the Na'el look at it as this, this God, like detony being that's just, you know, if it wakes up, they won't exist because they uh, really are part of its thoughts, its dreams. And the science approach to it is, well, no, this is, I don't even know what to call it, but this is like something that is, is this proto universe it's creating that is actually taking a hold of this universe and pulling it in and getting rid of it. So there's the science approach and there's a religious approach. And I thought I really liked how it didn't matter what way you look at it, the results and how to deal with it is still the same.
1: Right. Right. I mean, I would tend to look at that as a threat. I would see that, uh, you know, encouraging that kind of thing, it would be sort of like um, going to Jurassic Park and encouraging the T-Rex to eat you. Um, you've got this predatory baby universe that's appeared and it's, it's devouring ours. You know, it's sweeping it away and, and it's taking up uh, the space that uh, our universe used to occupy. It's, it's like, oh, that's literally like being being eaten by a predator. Um, so that's, you know, I'm sure that's, that's the Starfleet perspective. The nail don't necessarily have to see it the same way. Well,
2: and I really like speaking of that, the, the arc that the character of Frayn kind of takes because early on, he's very much radicalized. He, he really, you know, he's rooting for this thing to wipe out the nail as punishment for what they've done. But over the course of the novel as he sees the, you know, indiscriminate destruction that this thing is causing to both the guilty in his mind and the innocent, uh, you know, he really comes around and, and helps the Titan crew to save as many people as they can, both Nael and their, uh, what were formerly their subject species on on this planet Ogan that they've uh, colonized. I, I thought it was, you know, one of the strengths of Star Trek, again, is, you know, always seeing things from the perspective of that guest star. Like in the original series, you always had the alien of the week and you got their perspective. And in this case, I thought he was a really interesting voice to explore in this novel.
1: Wow, thank you. It was, uh, it was fun to write. Um, I mean, the whole, the whole Nael thing was this sort of weird sideways outsider look through a weird mirror back at humanity. Because that's where they started, and uh, you know, there but for the grace of uh, you know fate, whatever um, they they could have uh, you know they could have followed on with the rest of humanity, but they they had a, a different fate thrust upon them. So they just uh, did what humans do: adapt to it. And, well not
0: even just to adapt to it but now they have to adapt being back in our galaxy and that's a Mm -hmm, whole other story to be told
1: (laughs) yeah yeah and uh yeah that's one thing we never followed up on um yeah i don't know if the that'll ever i don't know if anybody besides you know you guys (laughs) even remember it's been so long but uh yeah that would be fun to revisit
2: Hmm. Yeah, I like the idea that they're kind of, you know, back where they started. Uh, like, I, I don't know that they actually end up there. But that's one of the ideas they talk about is, you know, putting the, the habitat back exactly where it was in the, you know, Lagrange point orbit kind of thing. And I think that's kind of an interesting poetic ending that, you know, the, I guess, prodigal son of humanity, if we really want to stretch the religious metaphor has returned and and, One of it
1: shows that there are some changes that are inalterable and there's no practical way to get them all the way home. The best you could do is get them back to the point they were at, right before they were sent off into the Magellanic Cloud, mm. and uh, that's okay. I mean, because they've adapted and they are what they are now. I mean, when we wouldn't, we humans wouldn't want to go back to you know living in trees.
0: Well, speak for yourself.
2: I'm ready to build a tree house <laughs> reading the headlines sometimes yeah i'm right there with you <laughs> yeah. no,
1: sometimes i think that's happening anyway so
2: yeah
0: uh, yeah naturally <laughs> could. so and, and there was a, a scene i really liked with akar and uh frayne on earth and frayne says to akar about being on his world and akar is like this is more your world than mine because akar isn't from earth right. and even Frayne wasn't born there that's where his ancestors are from i really like that that scene there
1: right i mean that's i'm sure that's how i would feel if uh, i ever you know visit uh, england grandfather and some of my uncles and aunts were born there and uh i've uh, so i've got the i've got the background but no uh no firsthand knowledge of it so it must be at least like that for, for the Niel. they're contemplating earth from, you know, L five or wherever it is. They parked Mm
2: -hmm. their, uh, their habitat. Awesome. Well, I guess, uh, you know, if, are there any kind of uh, closing thoughts you wanted to share about this novel and maybe the experience writing it?
1: I just, I remember a lot of collaboration, not just, not just me and Andy, but you know, as I mentioned, you know, Marco gathering the whole, team together and the people who would write subsequent volumes. And uh, it was, it felt very, um, you know, almost like a, I mean, writing novels uh, is a a solitary business, but that having all these different voices involved in it made it feel a bit like a legit TV writer's room. I, I I do remember that. And uh, as we did a lot of back and forth and, you know, asking questions. To, you know, like uh, asking Chris questions about an alien species he created. You know, so we get it right because like um, we were going to be there first. So we, I'm sure we did screw some of the, some of the other people's creations up, but we really did our <laughs> utmost not to.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> so uh, yeah, only only the rest of them know how uh, how they feel about what we did. Um, I didn't get yelled at very much
2: (laughs) (laughs) well personally I I felt it was a very strong uh two book start to the series and I I remember reading these way back when when they first came out and, and getting really excited about uh following the series especially given where it ends where you know we've got the you know we've we've done what nemesis said we had to do that riker's gone and taken care of the romulan situation and now they get to go out on this you know mission of discovery into the gum nebula you know far beyond federation space and i I, you know the the story possibilities when this when this series started i thought were so cool you know this idea of you know picard's famous line from insurrection does anybody remember when we used to be explorers and kind of getting back to that again
1: yeah, that was, that was kind of a, a back-to-basics. Uh, that was kind of the, the philosophy. And, I mean, on one hand, it was to go forward into this, you know, high-diversity crew, um, which, you know, no one had seen anything like, you know, as diverse as that. But it was, also, it was also a call to going back to basics for Star Trek, which is just what's out there and let's go, let's go look at it um and the other main thing i remember is i had to have the the story close the re, the re resolution to the romulan's problems had to be something unorthodox because this is will riker
2: well i guess uh you know all that's really left to ask is uh you know if people are interested in keeping up with uh what you're doing online Uh, Where can they do that? And also, do you have anything coming up that our listeners might be interested in knowing about?
1: Well, I'm uh, working on an original project that it's probably premature to speak about very much. I'll just say that it's kind of YA fantasy and uh, leave it at that. Um, And... uh, not contemplating any uh, any uh, Star Trek work or you know work for hire at the moment, um, but um, I never say never.
0: <laughs> so before you know, and, and by the way, we we both yeah we really do uh, we really do enjoy this novel and and the previous one and how this was set up and as we're talking through this with you. There's one thing I wanted to end with and I just want to know, since this is the first time you've been on the show, how did you get into Star Trek? How did you become a fan?
1: Um, I, remember, I, I can remember just kind of laying on my belly on this, uh, this really thick uh, shag carpet in front of a TV set that was like the size of a piano. <laughs> I must have been about four years old. And um, seeing Day of the Dove or I've worked out later though, that must've been Day of the Dove. Um, And just uh, getting pulled into it. Um, Well, I mean, I was probably way too young to appreciate the the science fiction or the philosophy, but um, NBC and General Electric, they, they did their jobs because there was a reason they picked all those bright primary colors for the, for the uniforms and, um, you know, all that color and the bridge that pops out at you, they were, uh, selling color TV sets hand over fist back then. And, um, it certainly caught my eye and, uh, and kept it until I was a little older and could understand what the show was all about. Um, but yeah, I just, I distinctly remember just watching that, with the same level of fascination I had in, in fifty years ago when I was five years old watching Neil Armstrong on the moon.
2: Wow, it's that's, that's quite an image, and I really like that. That's really cool. Well, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate uh, you taking the time to talk about you know this novel that was written so long ago.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's it's uh, yeah, it's not often I get uh, called upon to set the wayback machine that far back, but <laughs> it was
0: fun. yeah, we had to get you off the shag carpet, and talk about the book and still watching Star Trek tonight. Yeah. <laughs> so before we started recording, I was talking to Mike Martin on uh, offline here and uh, on the other side of the page, I forgot, we haven't said that in a long time, the other side of the page. So I was talking to him <laughs> on the other side of the page and he said, you know, this is a, a uh, family-friendly show, right? And I said, yeah, but, you know, if you slip up and you say a naughty word, we'll just have to bleep it out. I said, I've had a lot of practice with David Mack. And <laughs> he thought that was pretty funny. I think we all have heard the beeps when David Mack's been on.
2: Yeah, there's definitely been a few. Um, <laughs> David Mack, Dayton Ward a little bit as well, but David Mack definitely, uh, definitely is known for that.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, and I just want to say, beep beep
2: beep 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 <laughs> perfect wait did captain pike just come in weird oh, Anyway, <laughs> that's bad that is so bad oh. i'm so sorry <laughs> <laughs> oh i feel bad about that actually <laughs> captain pike is is star trek's version of r2d2 oh well, it's been fun talking about characters who communicate only in beeps today, but it's not the only thing that we've been discussing on the network. So here's a quick look at some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM.
1: Previously on Trek.fm, Literary Treks. The, it, it always frustrated me because on, on screen, we saw in depth the Klingon government, the Bajoran government, the Cardassian government, to a lesser extent, the Romulan government. We almost never saw the Federation government. You know, we, we three, three times we saw a president. Once we saw the council, the council was mentioned any number of times. But we never really saw it.
2: Warp 5. When I go to throw a switch for the first time, you know, a 4,000 amp switch, I got to wear this heavy, thick, padded uniform to make sure that if something went wrong, I don't die. But if I can get some Tholian silk. Yeah, you could look good be like doing a, it at the same time. Right. T-shirt and and jeans and we're good. Maybe some I, I'm just thinking for when I go to Mexico, <laughs> I can have a stylish tholian silk Mexican Hawaiian or a Hawaiian shirt. I love yeah, it. Yeah, because you got to know that that stuff would that that stuff would be light on you. It would look good. It would breathe well. Earl Grey. Yeah, and the odd
1: thing was, I really didn't know. And I remember my dad came to me. And I was like nine years old. And I'm watching TV downstairs in New Jersey, and I'm watching some old James Cagney movie, and James Cagney was, you know, in a scene where he was, you know, beating up a bunch of people, like in a bra- barroom brawl, or, And my dad came downstairs. It was like 10 o'clock at night. And he saw me really watching James Cagney beat up all these guys. And my dad said to me, you really like James Cagney. And I said, yeah, I do. And he goes, do you want to be like James Cagney? And I thought about it. And I said, no, but I want to be those guys he's beating up. <laughs> Melodic Treks.
0: And in this music, you have these soaring horns that introduce the melody and they carry it through. And the sound, because the register is very high, the sound, and because of the nature of the French horn, the sound is very hollow. It's somewhat ghostly and haunting. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm.
2: So check out all those shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the
0: subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad or Apple TV or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they are published. And please leave us a star rating and written review. And if you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, YouTube, and most third-party apps. And you can stream and download the MP3 file from our
2: website or grab the RSS link. And if you'd like to help us keep all of our shows coming to each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Just visit patreon.com slash trekfm. That's patreo ncom slash trekfm to get all the details. Perks can include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, one-way trips to the small Magellanic cloud, and more, available through our special patrons website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month. We really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com trekfm. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best
0: place to join in the larger conversation is the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. And if you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Literary Treks and it will come right to us. And you can also find the network on Twitter at Trek FM and on Facebook at facebook.com slash
2: And special for literary treks, we have a Goodreads group and there you can find bookshelves with all of our previously covered books as well as the currently reading section. So you know what's coming up for future shows. Plus there are great conversations happening about all the books and comics in the star Trek literary universe just search for Literary Treks on Goodreads and click Join Group, and we'll be happy to let you write in. We'd like to thank Norman C. Lau, Ken Tripp, Greg Rosier, Brandon Che Mutala, Justin Ozer, and Jeffrey Harlan for their support of the Trek FM network, and for being associate producers for Literary Treks as well. Thank you all so very much. Now, Bruce, when you're not figuring out the perfect addition to your bracelet that was given to your ancestor personally by Ambassador Aiden Burgess, where can we find you?
0: I'm so glad you mentioned that because we didn't even mention it during the feature, but <laughs> I knew there'd be, see, I knew there'd be something that we forgot to mention. <laughs> always something. There's always something. <laughs> well, you can find me uh, trying to find all my ancestors that passed this on to me. But if I'm not doing that, you can find me on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex. And you can find me here on the network doing Live from the Edge when there's new episodes of Discovery. And I do that with Brandy Jackala. And I can also be doing something on another podcast like Star Wars on the Star Wars Report. So you can check that out, too. And, of course, I'm always in the Babel Conference. That's B-A-B-E-L. So, Dan... When you're not starting to wake up and wiping us out of existence, where can people find you?
2: (laughs) You know, sometimes Monday morning, that's really what it feels like. (laughs) But uh, even then, you know, one of the first things I do is grab my phone. So when that's happening, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Kertrats. That's K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. Uh, You can find me also on YouTube where I make uh, videos mostly about Star Trek. That's at youtube.com slash Productions. I'm also on facebook.com slash Productions, Instagram at KurtRatz47. Man, I'm everywhere on the internet, mostly talking about Star Trek. Well, thank you all so much for listening. And until next time, live long and read on.
1: You call that light reading? To each his own, number one.